If I asked you what doctrines are the most attacked doctrines in our age, you might come up with a few different answers. You might claim that the doctrine of anthropology, as we see battles over abortion, transgenderism, homosexuality, and race, to name a few, prominently debated on Capitol Hill, primetime news, and of course on the highly profitable and supremely intellectual screens of social media. You might say that the doctrine of Scripture is being attacked. In culture, as we see constant calls to undermine the authority and reliability of Scripture, or as books are written and embraced by the so-called Christian community, like Jesus Calling, that seek to provide additional revelation from outside of Scripture. You might even claim that Christology is the most attacked doctrine in our age, as Jesus is often reduced to a moral teacher, imaginary friend, or even a prophet on the same level of Muhammad or Moses. And while I wholeheartedly agree that all of these doctrines are being attacked on every level in our culture and in our age, there is one doctrine to me that that stands out as the most trampled of them all. And this is not a doctrine that is just trampled by our culture. It's not a, a doctrine that is just trampled on by the world. This is a doctrine that is often the most ignored and the most bastardized by people who claim to follow Jesus Christ. The doctrine that I'm referring to is ecclesiology, or the doctrine of the church. Among evangelicals, the overwhelming sentiment regarding the church is that it is unimportant and unnecessary. According to Ligonier's 2022 State of Theology survey, Only 25% of evangelicals strongly believe that a Christian has an obligation to join a local church. Even among those that do find the local church necessary, there is a wide belief that the local church can be whatever the pastor wants it to be, as long as it does not participate in what the Bible strictly condemns. Uh, Perhaps you sit here and you think I'm exaggerating this morning. We don't have to look far to, to see that I'm telling the truth. There are churches miles from here that often erect giant movie sets in order to create an attractional experience for audiences looking to be entertained. Drive in any direction and you'll see churches that have no real pastor or elders, but a giant screen where a celebrity preaches from hundreds or even thousands of miles away. Pull into the driveways of many professing Christians in our area on a Sunday morning, and you'll find as you walk into their homes that they are content not to be a part of a local church at all. Instead, they log into their favorite live streams, whatever it is convenient for them, to consume a well-produced event from their couch and call it church. And many of these churches... Pragmatism is the one core value and principle that unites all of those that participate in such ministries. Lest you think 
This is simply a problem with seeker-sensitive, high-budget, celebrity-driven, performance-oriented, consumer-minded churches. We can also walk into countless small, cold, lifeless churches that aren't impressive in the world's eyes at all. Oftentimes, there is no attempt to reach their communities for Christ. Their main passion is to hold on to sacred cows and make sure that no one violates their favorite tertiary soapbox issues that unite the small gathering. No true passion, no true love for Jesus exists, only love for tradition and power and comfort. Whether it be the attractional, emotion-driven churches that seem so prominent in our day, or the unattractive, emotionless churches that exist in our country, there seem to be one common denominator. They believe that the church is whatever they want it to be. It is meant to highlight their greatness, their comfort, their preferences, their style, their intellect, their leadership capabilities, their creativity, or even their family. Yes, many churches today look more like fools building the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. In their wickedness, they say, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Yet, church, if we open up our Bibles, we see that the Bible is very clear about what the church is how it is to be ordered, and what it is commanded to do. We also see that God is very serious about all three of these areas. In fact, such realities are abounding in the pages of God's Word. We cannot blame the lack of a biblical ecclesiology on a lack of clarity on God's part. If there is any deviation or lack of understanding about God's plan and design for his church, it falls right at the feet of sinful men. You might ask, how did we get to this point? Well, we might think that our present generation is unique in this phenomenon. However, today, we are simply seeing the fruit of several centuries of minimizing the importance of healthy church doctrine. Over the past several centuries, we saw the emergence of revival services that became prominent with preachers such as George Whitfield. And these revival services, traveling evangelists would tour the world and, and preach the gospel in, in hopes that people would get saved. As such practices were introduced in America, many local churches and their elders had mixed opinions about strategies because these traveling evangelists weren't really tied to, commissioned by, or even supported by a local church. Yet, these traveling preachers were dynamic, persuasive, and most importantly, they got results. In fact, preachers such as Charles Finney believed that he could always conjure up, with result, or conjure up results with the right means. Consider this quote from Charles Finney. He said this, a revival is not a miracle, nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result 
of the right use of constituted means. Now, we might scoff at such a bold statement, but this is the truly predominant view of the church today. This was certainly the understanding of most Christians that followed after Charles Finney. We might consider influential men such as D.L. Moody or Billy Sunday or Mordecai Ham that followed in the footsteps of Finney in their revival tactics. However, the most influential of them all was a man that Mordecai Ham led to Christ at a revival in North Carolina, whose name was Billy Graham. Now, it's hard to deny the impact that Billy Graham had on the world, even in a positive sense. He would travel the world and preach in stadiums, and, and thousands of people would walk down the aisle as the choir sang, Just As I Am. And at the end of the aisle, they would be greeted by a counselor who would lead them in a prayer to ask Jesus into their heart. After the event, Billy would hit the road and the counselors would return to their towns. But when these new supposed, supposed converts would leave the revival, though, where would they go? How would they grow in their knowledge and love for the Lord? When you look at the way most large and influential churches model themselves in the, in the 70s and in the 80s, they began to model themselves after Billy Graham crusades. Church became an event where the primary purpose was evangelistic in nature. The only thing that mattered was people getting saved. It didn't really matter how the church did it. If people were getting saved, God must be pleased. One can only imagine what sort of theological impact that such ideas had on a whole generation of people. When salvation is the only thing that really matters... All other salvation, all other theology begins to fall by the wayside. This really is how many Christians still act today. They believe that there are two types of doctrine. Doctrine is either essential for salvation or it is unimportant altogether. However, we need to understand that other doctrines are of utmost importance as well. Some doctrines are essential for obedience. Some doctrines are essential for our witness. Some doctrines aren't the gospel per se, but they are so closely tied to the gospel that minimizing their importance can begin to alter our understanding of the gospel altogether. Ecclesiology is one such doctrine. Now, you might think I'm overstating the importance of the doctrine of the church. In fact, you might be wondering why the elders have chosen to spend the next few months preaching about this topic. Today, you might sit here a bit skeptical about this sermon series. You might think that there is some hidden motive or, or some Trojan horse effort to change Community Bible Church. Friends, let me give you peace and assure you that there, this is not the case. There is no hidden agenda. There is no Trojan horse. Let it be known that we greatly hope that this sermon series changes Community Bible Church. Like our time in Luke, Ezra, and Nehemiah, we hope that this sermon series draws us closer to Christ 
and increases our affection for him and gives us a desire to honor him and how we pursue being the church that the Bible calls us to be. Amen? My task today and next Sunday is to answer the question, why does the church matter? Why does the church matter? I believe that this sermon today is foundational for the rest of the sermon series. I really do. If we don't get this one point, the rest of our ecclesiology won't matter. Most of the other sermons in this series will touch on some more of the application-driven areas of ecclesiology, like church membership, leadership, discipleship, church discipline, etc. However, we must first answer, why does the church matter? Now, truthfully, there are an infinite number of reasons why the church matters. However, today, I want to give you the one main reason the church matters. Just one. I have one point today. Doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon, but I got one point. It's a simple point. The church matters because the glory of God matters. The church matters because the glory of God matters. This is what we see in the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Ephesians 3.7. We will look at Ephesians 3.7-12. through 12. Please follow along as I read. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. As Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, he mentions that the Lord has made him a, a minister of the gospel. It is this gospel that Paul describes in the first two chapters of Ephesians. The gospel that Paul speaks of is the good news that God saves his enemies by the blood of Jesus. He takes those that are far and brings them near to him. That is the gospel. However, Paul speaks to other realities that are tied to the gospel as well, doesn't he? In Ephesians 2, Paul highlights that the gospel doesn't just bring us near to God, it brings us near to one another. Consider Ephesians 2, 12 through 16 that says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's this glorious change, though, in verse 13. But now in Christ... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do we see what the gospel produces, friends? It produces real fellowship with God. It produces fellowship with all of those who have been brought near to God. The gospel literally creates the church. Now one might wonder why we call the doctrine of the church ecclesiology. Well, many of you know that it comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia is is the Greek word that we render in English church. However, most literally, ekklesia is a compound word that means the called out together. The called out together. The ekklesia is the people of God who have been called out of darkness and into light. They have been redeemed from the slave market and have been bought by the blood of Jesus. Like Lazarus, they have been called out of the grave and raised to walk in newness of life. It is essential to understand this, church, to understand that receiving Christ results in being brought into the people of God. As Paul considers his gospel ministry in Ephesians chapter 3, he takes great joy in proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. What is the mystery of the gospel? Well, according to Ephesians 2.6, it's this. Mystery, the mystery is that uh, the, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They were once not God's people. Now they are included among God's covenant people. God's church does not consist of one ethnicity, one nation, one age range, or socioeconomic status. Instead, the church is composed of Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, young, old, etc. So we are. Now one might ask, what is God's purpose for the church? What is his purpose? If we see who we are, what's, what's our purpose? Paul gives us the answer to this question in Ephesians 3.10. God intends to build his church for the purpose of declaring his wisdom over all creation. God intends to build his church for the purpose of declaring his wisdom over all creation. His wisdom. Now, friends, this reality, it should humble us. I I, I want you to understand the implications of what is being written here. Hear me. The church is ultimately not about you. And if you need me to say it, it's not about me either. It does not exist to highlight your your gifts, ideas, self-expression, 
importance, or comfort. It does not exist to provide you friends, employment, entertainment, or interesting conversations. The church is not even ultimately about the lost. The church is ultimately and supremely about God. The church exists for His glory. It is meant to highlight His wisdom. Now, few true Christians will deny such claim. They would declare with certainty that the church exists for God's glory, not ours. They know that to be true, yet... What happens when we don't get the glory we think we are due in the context of the local church? What happens when we feel overlooked or unappreciated? What happens when we find the church a bit boring or lacking in things that appeal to our preferences? What happens when there aren't as many people in our stage of life at church? What happens when the church doesn't meet your expectations? Have we not all been there before? Just me? In those moments, how do we respond? Well, we might isolate ourselves from the church. We might become bitter with the church. We might gossip about people in the church. We might become depressed when we think about the church. We might think that the church needs a hero like us or our family. We might become apathetic and spiritually lethargic. Why do we respond in such ways? Why? Because deep inside, we often think that the church is all about us. We must repent of such haughty, idolatrous heart postures. No, friends, the church exists to highlight the wisdom of Almighty God. It exists for His glory. Doesn't this radically redefine our expectations of what the church should be? If we are to be a people that make known the wisdom of God to the world, then it is imperative that we know what the wisdom of God is. We must understand that God has something in mind when he mentions the wisdom of God. We we aren't free to define the wisdom of God. If we were, it would be the wisdom of man, not the wisdom of God. And so whatever this plan to display the wisdom of God through the church looks like, we know that it was God's eternal purpose to do so according to Ephesians 3.11. God's plan to bring glory to himself by showing his wisdom through the church was God's plan from eternity past. Needless to say, God has been thinking about this for a really, really, really long time. So what does the church making known the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places look like? Well, providentially, God has given us a book called the Bible that he has revealed his plan for the church. And we believe as a church that the scriptures are wholly sufficient to tell us everything we need to walk in obedience, including a God-honoring theology.
We have no need to look at trends, to lean on surveys, or church tradition, or pragmatic business practices. We can trust the Bible alone to lead us in a way that brings glory to God. If that is the case, let us spend the rest of our time together looking at Scripture to see what I believe God intends for His church. I want to teach the intent of what I believe Ephesians 3.10 looks like. So to do this, I would like us to turn in our Bibles back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to cover a lot of Scripture in our time remaining this morning. If it would help you, there are handouts in the back with all the Scriptures on it. You can get up. You're not going to distract me. and Go get one now if you need it. But in Genesis 1, 26 through 30, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed in, in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to every thing that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Friends, it, was, it is here in the Garden of Eden where we get a glimpse of God's plan for man. We see that the first description of man is that he was made in the image and likeness of God. Unlike any other part of creation, Man was made for the specific purpose of imaging God throughout all of creation. Specifically, man represented God as they roamed the earth. This did not mean that man was God. It does not mean that man was God-like. It means that there was something specific about man that pointed to the greatness of God that was not true of any other part of creation. We also glean from the text that man was called to have dominion throughout the earth. This Hebrew word for dominion in Genesis 1 signified conquering or ruling, governing. Man was not to take a passive role in this world or an equal role to the rest of creation. Instead, they would rule on earth as God's image bearers. Again, they would not rule as God, and they would not rule over God. Instead, they were God's governing representatives on earth. The way that they lived and the way that they govern should have pointed to the one whose image that they possessed. We also see the call to fill the earth with offspring. They would rule the earth as they bore other image bearers of their creator. As man conquered earth and filled it with other image bearers, the whole earth would not be full of the glory of man, but the glory of God. 
all of creation would declare how great God is. So, God made Adam and his wife Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis 2.15, God commissioned Adam to cultivate and keep the garden. This had the idea of protecting the garden and watching over every aspect of it. Now, typically, we just read these chapters as, as a quick description of creation and the, the fall of man. However, we often miss the significance of the description of Adam in the garden in these early chapters of Genesis. Now, it, it has been said by countless theologians that Adam was the first priest king that we read about in the Bible. Now, we, we know that Genesis 1 does not use the language of priest or of king in the text. However, when individuals in the ancient Near East would have read about the description of Adam, the first thing that they would have thought about was king or nobility. Not only that, but when Israelites would have read the description of the Garden of Eden, the first thing that would have come to mind was a temple. For instance, like Israel's temple, Eden was a place where God dwelt with his people. G.K. Beale notes, in Hebrew, the same verbal form used for God's walking back and forth in the garden also describes God's presence in the tabernacle. Next, the two Hebrew words for cultivate it and keep it, referring to the garden, Adam's commission there, are usually translated serve and guard. Again, Beale notes, when these two words occur together later in the Old Testament, without exception, they have this meaning and refer either to Israelites serving and guarding God's word, or more often, to priests who serve God in the temple and guard the temple from unclean things entering it. One can even look at the book of Revelation as it describes the new heavens and the new earth. How is it described? Described as a temple. However, you'll also notice in its description that it has a very similar garden-esque description, very similar to Eden. Now, if you're looking for some good books on this subject, books that have helped me are From Eden to New Jerusalem by T. Desmond Alexander or The Temple and the Church's Mission by G.K. Beale. They have helped my understanding. They're very fascinating. And obviously there's more to be said on the subject, but suffice it to say that Adam was the one who would represent God's authority on the earth as a king. And he would serve God as a priest by serving and guarding the earth and keeping it from corruption. Unfortunately, as we read the account of Genesis, we, we know that Adam failed in his calling. Instead of representing the holiness and honor of God, Adam listened to the evil serpent. Instead of taking dominion and conquering the earth, Adam was conquered by sin. Instead of watching over and protecting the garden, Adam's willful negligence resulted in the whole earth being corrupted by sin. Well, as the biblical story progresses, we see the world becoming increasingly evil to the point that God decides to destroy the whole world with a flood, with the exception of a handful of animals and one family. After the flood subsides, God calls Noah and gives him a similar mandate to Adam. Here, we see Noah working as another type of priest king. 
In Genesis 8, we see God call Noah to fill the earth and subdue it. He was to leave the ark, go out into the world, and conquer it. We even see Noah doing priestly work by making sacrifices to the Lord. Yet, like his father Adam before him, he would quickly fail in a miserable fashion. Instead of obeying God's commands, Noah gets drunk and is defiled inside of his tent. Well, as one continues through the book of Genesis, we know that God makes a promise to a man named Abram. And from Abram, God would make a mighty nation from his offspring. He would bless him, and through him, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. We come to find out that God changes Abram's name to Abraham, and the nation that comes from his offspring is the nation of Israel. It is this nation of Israel that is to serve as a type of priest-king representing God in, in this world. And we see this rather clearly, turning your Bibles to Exodus 19. It's very clear, Exodus 19, 5 through 6, that tells us this. God is writing to Israel through the prophet Moses. He says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Friends, Israel was to be a distinct people marked by their love and obedience to the Lord. In fact, God explicitly tells Israel that they were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to do what Adam could never do. They were to serve the Lord and proclaim God's goodness and holiness to the nations. They were to lead in righteousness and protect one another from sin. We see this clearly in another passage that God gives Israel. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. In Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, we read, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? It is in this passage that I believe we see Israel's mission the most clearly. At this point in Israel's history, God was bringing them to a land which he was calling them to take dominion there. They were to conquer the land. They were to take full possession of it. In this land, God's perfect law would be the law of the land. This law that God had given was to be their wisdom. As they obeyed this law, it would be a light to the nations. The nations would look at the Israelites and see that there was something distinct about them. What was distinct about them? Their wisdom. However, as we see in Deuteronomy 4.7, it wasn't actually Israel's wisdom that was so impressive. It was God's wisdom from his word that was to be most clearly highlighted. 
God was to be the one who received all of the glory as Israel reflected God's perfect character in the land by obeying his law. And so from Abraham to King David, this was ultimately the mission of Israel, all of its priests and all of its kings, to rule on God's behalf while consecrating themselves on the inside. They were not to be a people who were just outwardly submissive to God. They were to be a people who loved God and desired holiness. Unfortunately, Israel failed dramatically in their mission. They did not trust God alone to give them the land. Instead, they cowered in fear at the other nations. They did not obey God's law and live as people set apart for God's purposes. Instead, by and large, their lives looked more like the nations around them. They did not live for the glory of God and find pleasure in Him. Instead, they pursued idols and lived for their own glory. If one, friends, were to read the Old Testament through the book of Kings, you might come to the conclusion that God is a pitiful God. You might come to that conclusion. We might look at God like the Atlanta Falcons. Sure, they have some flashes of greatness at times. Oh, they're so close to victory. However, they're never able to get over the hump. That might be how you look at God in the Old Testament. Man, at times, God really did some great things. I mean, that thing he did with the flood was awesome. What he did in Egypt, that was really something. That David and Goliath story, it is really powerful. However, as many times as God seems intent on creating a people who would love him, follow him, and properly display his glory throughout the earth, one might conclude that he is a failure if they read the story of Israel. One could clearly see that the people that God built up as a nation through Abraham, the people who God brought out of slavery in Egypt, the people who God gave a land to, were the very same people that God would send into captivity and judgment because of their sin. This is God's focus in Ezekiel 36. God recalls Israel's unfaithfulness in Ezekiel 36, 16 through 21. Israel was not a light to the nations. Instead, God says that they profaned God's name among the nations. However, church, we must remember that God's primary concern was for his glory. God was not working in a way that guaranteed, that guaranteed God was working in a way that guaranteed that only he would receive glory. God would not work according to the wisdom of man. God would work according to his wisdom. His providence would be praised. His glory would be renowned. His wisdom would be heralded. His holiness would be exalted. God alone would be worshipped. This is God's sentiment in Ezekiel 36.22. God was going to act. However, it wasn't for Israel's sake that God was going to act. God was most concerned in his action and what he was going to do for his own glory. God tells Israel, you profaned my name, yet I will vindicate my holy name. God alone would work in such a way that the nations would know that he was the one true God. Yet, he would still do it 
through his people. How would God do this? Well, according to Ezekiel 36.25, God said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in the statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. As we read this passage in Ezekiel, we see that God was going to do what Israel never could do. Because they could never be clean, God would cleanse them. Because their dead sinful hearts could never love God, God would give them new hearts that do love him. Because they could never obey God, God would put the Holy Spirit inside of them and cause them to walk in obedience. They would be marked by God's gracious love and provision. They would be marked by a conviction of sin and repentance. But still, although God's people would be the benefactors of God's kindness, the happiness of God's people wasn't God's primary concern. God was doing this for his own glory. The Lord says something similar to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God promises to bring about a new covenant that was not like the covenant that was made before. This covenant would be characterized by inward brokenness. It would be characterized by hearts that would desire to obey the Lord. However, the most important aspect of this new covenant is that everyone in that covenant would truly know the Lord. This was so radically different from the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, we know that the people within that covenant consisted of people who truly trusted in the Lord and people who did not. There were people that walked with God, yet there were people who didn't walk with God. The covenant people were marked by the outward expression of circumcision. However, only a small amount of people, a remnant, were marked by the circumcision of their hearts. In the new covenant, this wouldn't be so. Everyone in that new covenant would love the Lord their God with all their hearts, their soul, their mind, and their strength. They would turn from their sin and follow God. They would desire to obey the Lord God in light of His abundant grace. How would God do this? By sending the one who would be a holy priest and a righteous king. The one true priest. The one true king. 
The one spoken of in Zechariah 6, 12 through 13, where we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Yes, the word of God called the people of God to look for a priest king to do what they could never do. Live a righteous life that perfectly reflects the character of God to watch over God's people and direct them in righteousness, to multiply offspring and fill the earth with the glory of God, to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, to cleanse the people of their sin once and for all, and to take dominion and conquer all evil in the world. Of course, friends, as we've studied the gospel of Luke for two and a half years, we know that the one who did this was Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect priest king who offers a new covenant. Jesus is the new Adam, David's son, prophet like Moses, true Israel, and did everything they couldn't do in his active obedience. In his death, he made atonement for our sin. On the third day, he rose from the grave and defeated sin and death once and for all. And one day, he will hand over the kingdom to the Father. But now, Jesus is building his offspring, the church. This brings us back to Ephesians 3. Yes, it was God's eternal purpose for God's wisdom to be made manifest throughout all of creation through the church. However, as Ephesians 3.11 tells us, this would only happen because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection from the dead. If God called us to go out and demonstrate the wisdom of God apart from the work of Christ, we would fail just like Israel. However, Christ's work will result in God doing something through the church that Israel could never do on their own. Christ has purchased a people for his own possession with his blood. Every one of those people will come to him. Everyone will have their sin forgiven. Everyone will spend eternity with him. Not a single one of those people will ultimately turn away from God. Every one of those people will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus' atoning work on their behalf. Christ will give every single one of those people the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to change them, to change their affections, to change their allegiance, to change their joy, to change their priorities, to position their hearts to obey. And while these people will not be perfect people in this life, their lives will be marked by obedience and repentance as the Holy Spirit prompts. This group of people is called the church. What is the result? Well, Revelation 5, 9 says it so beautifully. Speaking of Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood 
You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What does it mean for the church to make known the wisdom of God in all of creation? It means that through the church, God will accomplish what Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, and anyone else in the Old Covenant couldn't. The church will be a kingdom that it proclaims the rule and reign of their true king, King Jesus. The church will be a group of priests who seek purity among God's people and will offer spiritual sacrifices to God. God will accomplish his purpose in creating man and bring glory to his name. As we close, friends, our understanding of the church matters because it is through the church that the world will see the wisdom of our God. That's where the church matters. As you've seen through all the Old Testament, that reality is very, very important to the heart of God. God is jealous for his glory. It is through the church in these last days that God has chosen to glorify himself. When I say ecclesiology matters, I mean that a biblical understanding of the gospel matters. Elders' leadership matters. The service of deacons matter. The congregation, the congregation obeying its call matters. Baptism matters. Discipleship matters. Church discipline matters. Preaching matters. Singing matters. The Lord's Supper matters. Prayer matters. Missions matters. Church membership, it matters. Why? Because such means are the specific ways that God's people will demonstrate the wisdom of God to this world. It is through the church utilizing such means, not man's means, such God-given means in his word, that Christ and his work on the cross will be proclaimed to the world. We are not free to create our own job description. God has spoken. To reject or ignore what God has written regarding his church is to degrade the glory of God. I know that opening up our sermon series on a topic such as the glory of God might not seem like the most practical way to begin our series on the church. You probably came here ready to talk about missions, evangelism, church discipline, or membership, or something else. And these topics will all be covered in the weeks ahead. However, as I consider our church, the topic covered today might be the one thing we need to hear more than anything. I know it's the one thing that my heart constantly needs to hear. And such truths are the foundation of the rest of this study. If we miss this, we miss everything.
It doesn't get more practical than this. We must understand that this is God's church. It exists for his glory alone. And it is meant to display God's wisdom alone. As I finish this sermon and we we take communion and we sing our final song and we, we move on with our day, I want you to truly meditate on your thoughts about the church over the past several years. It's talking about you individually, maybe even you and your family. Have your thoughts about the church brought joy or frustration to your heart? Have the past few years of political turmoil, strained relationships, and a polarizing pandemic caused you to distance yourself from the church or lean into the church? Have your unmet expectations in the church hurt relationships with other people within this body of believers? How many of your conversations with people in this body center around the glory of God? Where has the local church been on your list of priorities over the past several years? Friends, if you're like me, my heart often abounds with frustration with the church. Just being honest. My heart's natural tendency is to seek my own preferences, my own comforts, and my own glory. It is such selfish heart postures that are at the root of such sinful frustration with the church. Yes, I I have had righteous frustrations at times with regard to false doctrines being proclaimed or injustices being done. However, those times are few and far in between. Most of the time, my frustration is a result of my own selfish pursuit of glory. I want glory in my marriage. I want glory as a father. I want glory as a businessman. I want glory in my friendships. And shamefully, shamefully, I often want glory in the church. Left to myself, this is my natural bent. Yet, thank God for his grace and his mercy. I imagine many of you struggle in the same way. Intellectually, we know that our lives are to be about nothing but the glory of God. We would never say anything different with our mouths. However, do our hearts really know and treasure that? Does your heart treasure that truth? Before we spend a few sermons on who we are to be as a church, can we pray that God would first and foremost give us hearts that love his glory? Can we pray that God would remove any selfish idolatry in our hearts that seek to glorify ourselves? Can we pray that God would make us content in any season or circumstance as long as he is magnified? Can we pray that God would make us a humble church that relies on his strength and wisdom to accomplish his purposes. 
Church, we need God to do this. And he who has called us to such a task will indeed bring it to completion. Amen.